Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. What's the 411? You tuned in to 411 Team. 411 Teen is a weekly program for teens, families, and other interested folks. 411 Teen provides a forum to examine and discuss various issues and events that confront, intersect, and sometimes interrupt our daily lives. Dr. Edward Phillips, an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School and Yuna Jada, are co-authors of a new book, Food, We Need to Talk, the science-based, human-laced, last word on eating, diet, and making peace with your body. Dr. Phillips has trained over 25,000 clinicians from 115 countries. He lives in Needham, Massachusetts. Yuna spent her undergraduate years at Harvard trying to be skinny. Only after becoming interested in weightlifting did she start to learn about the science of eating, weight, and diet. Her research journey and body image struggles led her to start the podcast, Food, We Need to Talk, with Dr. Edward Phillips. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Dr. Liz Hollyfield, and I welcome you both to 411-TEEN. Thank you for having us, Liz. And thanks for coming. You know, the ranks of... Overweight and obese are, are rapidly increasing in the United States. Um, it's about one in five young people in the United States, ages 12 to 19, struggle with obesity. And about 38% of American adults, nearly 80 million men and women, have a body mass index of 30 or higher. Overweight and, overbe- and obesity are more than a cosmetic concern. Obesity puts people at risk for more than 30 chronic health conditions. Overweight and obesity are known factors for diabetes, high blood pressure, gallbladder disease, arthritis, respiratory problems, and some forms of cancer. This I find particularly ironic because the American culture seems to be obsessed with diet and thinness. We spend more than $53 billion a year on weight loss products and services. So my question to you all is, what is going on? Why are we seeing more and more weight problems in America? Why, what's happening with our eating habits? Does nutritional value matter? So I have all those questions to ask you. But first, let's start with the book. Why did you write the book? What was the impetus for writing Food We Need to Talk? So Food We Need to Talk, the book, actually came out of a desire for us to delve into more of the science that we get to talk about on our podcast. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure as you're aware, as a seasoned radio host that you are, (laughs) um, the auditory medium is great at a lot of things, but there are certain things that are harder to convey auditorily. So especially when you dive deeper and deeper into science, like if you're hearing all these big words and they're not really being explained and, you know, how do you use footnotes in auditory format? There's just a lot of limitations. And so 
the book was this way for us to really delve into a lot of the science that we didn't get a chance to on the podcast a lot of the time mm-hmm. and for us to share a bit more of our personal stories because on the podcast we're really focused on trying to inform the listeners as much as possible and not make it you know so much about us obviously we do talk about us but it's not the main focus and the book is this really cool mixture of part memoir part almost medical textbook someone had written an interview um, because we get to do the scientific part and the memoir part in a way that we don't actually get to do in the auditory format. And I must add that I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. And I thought that was one of the unique components of the book. I always ask authors who I'm interviewing, you know, what makes your book different than others? And I think you've already answered it. Um, Eddie, did you have anything else that you wanted so to the, add? The other thing, so I'm a clinician, I'm a, a physician for, have been for over 30 years, and I try to meet my patients where they are. Some people do well listening, other people do well reading. Mm-hmm. The thing that I enjoy about the way the book is structured is that let's say you're reading an early chapter, a lot of memoir in there, and it strikes you that, well, I really do overeat when I'm tired. <laughs> you are allowed to skip ahead to the chapter on sleep. <laughs> and maybe that's the most important. Same thing for stress mm-hmm. and same thing for uh, if you want to sort of focus on maybe I should be fo- maybe I should be more involved with doing exercise and mm-hmm. take, the, take the pressure off of eating, what not to eat, when to eat, you know, how much, how little, um, all, all of the craziness that you alluded to just a few mm-hmm. minutes ago. Do you all feel that the emphasis on weight is just too extreme or it's misguided because I, I tend to see yeah. I tend to see that that and that's why I asked you that yeah I mean I think in my personal experience all of the emphasis for me on food and exercise was on weight and that led to some of the unhealthiest behaviors that I had ever done so when I wasn't focused on my weight I actually ate pretty healthily mm-hmm. I moved to play outside it was fun it was not really stressful and then when it became all about my weight was when I started to eat very, very restrictively and not eat enough and overexercise. And so I think at least for me, the focus on weight has led to the most extreme unhealthy behaviors. And it also led to the most weight gain. So when I didn't care about my weight, I never had a weight problem. As soon as I started trying to lose weight, I was constantly <laughs> gaining weight. So I think that's part of the, you know, the thing that you mentioned in the beginning about how we all seem so obsessed with dieting and thinness, and yet there's so many people that have higher weights in the country. And it's part of this paradox that if you're restricting your body, there's a lot of biological mechanisms that your body has to try to get you to not lose weight and also sometimes even gain weight. Okay. What impact does Madison Avenue or I guess we could say Madison Avenue and the social media have this because they seem to present, not they seem to, they do. They present an unrealistic picture. Yeah, I think social media is one of the most, um, I guess, big pervaders of, or, and not just social media, but media in general. So if you look at body standards for women, in the early 1900s versus what they are now. They're so different. Mm -hmm. And like waist to hip ratio has continued to decrease throughout the 1900s. And sometimes it might fluctuate up a little bit, but in general, the trend is down. So it's always like thinner, 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 thinner is the ideal. 
And obviously, if you just look at the population overall, that's kind of the opposite of what's happening. So there's this (laughs) giant disconnect between what we see in the media and actually what we see around us. Um, Eddie, did you want to add something to that? So uh, when when I heard, Liz, when you mentioned Madison Avenue, I was thinking more of the food industry Mm -hmm. and the extensive advertising that goes into making us want to try what turned out to be hyper palatable, which is kind of leads to almost like addictive foods that are ultra processed. Um, The short answer for this would be junk foods Mm -hmm. and more than half the calories consumed in the U.S., are um, these ultra-processed uh, junk foods. And the way that we get introduced to them is through Madison Avenue. It, you you don't have to watch television for too long or even turn on right. the, the, the internet to see a picture of a sizzling burger uh, or try to be convinced that, you know, it's time to, to go out and get that um, double bacon cheeseburger <laughs> or I used to love, mm-hmm. <laughs> ago, I think it was Wendy's that was advertising that all of a sudden now we needed a fourth meal. <laughs> And they were and they were ready to serve it. So <laughs> that just adds to the or create helps create a toxic food culture. And then you've got this crazy um, expectations, you know, on the next yeah. slide that you see of, you know, yeah, you, sh- you should eat like that, but you should also be skinny. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what's driving us so crazy. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, everybody isn't even meant to be thin. You need to be fit. But you don't need, you know you need to eat healthy, but everybody is not meant to be thin. No, totally. I grew up with two sisters who were always very, very thin. Like they've always been taller and thinner. Mm-hmm. And even though I was never overweight, I always just had like a larger body than they did. And part of the reason why I spent so much time trying to lose weight was because I thought like my body should look like theirs. Like, why does mine look different? And it's, we never ate differently. We grew up in the same household. We all had the same habits and my body was just bigger. So I think like we all do need to accept this idea that like people's bodies are genetically different and that you can't force your body to look a certain way. Good so the other, the other thing that, that I'll add to you now is that, uh, and Liz, you asked the question a few minutes ago, like, are we focused too much on weight? Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the conundrum is. Like as a clinician, I look at my patients and I say, you know, you would be healthier if you were to lose a little bit of weight. And we can go into all the details and how you Mm -hmm. can reverse chronic illness. On the other hand, if I stigmatize them or the society stigmatizes them because of of, of a fat bias that we have, and they are precluded from social um, interactions because of their weight or don't have employment opportunities or educational opportunities, or just the psychological stigma of, of living in a bigger body, that is actually worse for their health, both psychologically and physically, than is carrying around a few extra pounds. Mm-hmm. So talk about a conundrum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, we want to meet people where they are. If you want to lose a little weight, there are healthy ways to do it. We're not going to be advising a diet, but um, at, at all costs, we need to uh, not stigmatize people who are living in bigger bodies, which is most of us. Mm, true. Yuna, what impact did your perception of being excessively heavy have on your self-esteem and your self-concept? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I, I didn't even realize 
how much it had impacted my self-esteem until I was interviewing an eating disorder expert for our podcast, thinking like, yeah, you know, my eating behaviors weren't the best, but you know, who's, who doesn't have eating problems? It's normal, right? Mm-hmm. And I started interviewing her and she mentioned that people who have eating disorders have um, an inordinate amount of weight uh, excuse the pun, placed mm-hmm. upon their body shape and their body weight in their self-esteem pie chart. So she said, your self-esteem pie chart has all these slices. Like, I want to be a good daughter. I want to be a good friend. I want to be a good mother. I want to be a good student. And for people with an eating disorder, their entire pie is like, I am thin. That's what makes me good. If I am thin, I will be good. If I am heavy, I'm not good. And when she said that, I was just like, that is 100% me. Because up until that mm-hmm. point, this is maybe 23 or 24, up until that point, I felt like nothing I did was an accomplishment. And hold, hold that your all thoughts. Of- hold your thoughts <laughs> for one minute. This is that time where I have to interrupt you. You're tuned in to 411 Team. We're going to take a brief break, but I'll get right back at you. Just tuning in, the program is 411 Team. I'm Dr. Liz Hollyfield, and I'm having a very informative conversation with co-authors of Food We Need to Talk, the science-based, humor, lace, last word on eating, diet, and making peace with your body. Yuna, I had to interrupt you, rudely interrupt you. Would you continue? <laughs> Absolutely no problem. Um, Yeah, so when I was 24 and I was talking to this woman, she said that people with eating disorders place most of their self-esteem in how they look. Mm -hmm. And it really resonated with me because I realized that up until that point, I couldn't really verbalize why I really felt like a failure, even though I'd gotten into a good college and I'd gotten accolades at this college and I'd always gotten good grades. I was like, I am a gigantic failure because this most basic thing that everybody else seems to not have a problem with, I can't do. And I've sincerely tried for so long. And I'm just like, I just have no self-control. And it's just so embarrassing that like this basic thing is something I can't do, even though I can do well and all these other things. So to answer your question, it was my entire self-esteem. Like my entire lack of self-esteem was based around the fact that I wasn't skinny. And um, my body dysmorphia was very, very severe. So the way I perceived my body was just completely skewed from what it actually looked like. Um, And I just remember it was basically all I thought about and all I kind of aimed for in my life. Like Mm -hmm. I did do my job and I did do my schoolwork, but most of my heart energy was basically around how can I uh, turn my body into what I want it to be. Eddie, anything you want to add to that? No, I'll leave that one. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) When we look at weight and culture and self-esteem and self-concept, um, how does culture, what role does culture play about what we eat and the attitudes concerning weight and body image? What have you um, found? Both of you, so either one. that culture does play a role in basically the what the ideal body shape is. So we know there are other cultures where larger bodies are celebrated. Mm-hmm. And those cultures also have much lower rates of body dissatisfaction. And there's also research being done into eating disorder prevalence that shows that once cultures become westernized, rates of eating disorders also start to increase in that culture. So there Mm -hmm. is something about the cultural influence of specifically Western um, cultures that does 
idealize the thin body more than other cultures do often and leads to um, this kind of body dissatisfaction. But I think the good thing about that is that means that it's also partially in our control, right? So yeah. if we control culture That's to make it thing. the thin body is really popular, we can also control culture to try to make it that, you know, all bodies are celebrated and body diversity is something that we look up to, not just um, being a stick thin model. Yeah. And I, I think that in, in the business world, there's an expression that like culture trumps strategy every day. You know, you, mm -hmm. you can have the greatest plan for your business or for your life. And but the culture of, of that group, whether it's a, a company or whether it's a social group, um, that that's what what rules out. Um, I think what is going to save us in the end um, is hopefully going to be an evolution of the culture. And this goes back, Liz, to your first question about sort of acceptance and what, are, are we too hyper-focused? The whole body positivity movement, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm not sure I go along with, let's not attend to our weight at all, but I do like the idea of accepting folks as they are. Um, if we can create a culture in which we see health more broadly than the single number on your bathroom scale, <laughs> we're going to be a lot happier and a lot healthier. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if the culture were asking you, how accomplished do you feel mm -hmm. running a radio show for 22 years and, and, and being a, a, a psychologist? How, how happy do you feel in your relationships? How connected are you to mm -hmm. your, your spiritual community? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you getting enough exercise? All of these other things matter so much and dictate exactly how happy we are, even if the number on the scale is not what you're looking for. Well, define for us, listening audience, tell us exactly what is healthy eating? What, is, wow. what does that consist of? That is such a difficult question. That is the most difficult question of the whole show, probably. Um, I think we can both answer this in our own ways. But okay. at least for me, healthy eating is eating that nourishes you and also is effortless. So it's not something that is stressing you out all day, but it also is food mm -hmm. that has micronutrients that your body needs to survive and thrive. And I think if we can find a way to balance both those things, nourishment and having it make you mentally happy, then we have found a way to eat healthily. And I'll pick up on uh, some of the words that Yuna used. Um, food should be a nourishment and not a restriction. It should not be something where you feel like you're punishing yourself by eating something that you don't want to eat or not eating something that you really want to eat. Um, there should be a balance also of energy. Um, you know, in the end, uh, some of the easiest recommendations are get enough calories to run your body so you can do the things that you want and need to do. Um, I think it goes, going back to the prior question, I think it needs to fit into your culture. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to be a lot happier and an ideal diet is going to be something that meshes with either the way that you're raised or the group that you choose to be with. And hopefully you're eating foods that are nourishing and helping your body and not doing bad things to it. And we could get into certain foods, back to the junk foods, mm -hmm. the ultra processed foods, which are actually not 
helping your body and I would put them into the unhealthy category. But to add a little wrinkle to this, it doesn't mean you have to avoid them completely. Right. Meaning when it's your birthday and someone picks you a nice cake or buys one at the store, enjoy the piece of cake. And when you get to the movie theater, it's okay to get some popcorn, uh, mm -hmm. but not Indeed. half your calories. So the, it's a, again, balance fitting with your culture um, and something that nourishes and that you enjoy. Um, in addition to your book, and first let me say the book is Food, We Need to Talk, the science-based humor lace last word on eating, diet, and making peace with your body. Where can the listening audience get this book? Where can they purchase it? all book platforms so amazon barnes and nobles powell's books um but if you want links to all of those uh listeners can head to our website foodweneedtotalk.com slash book and that'll take you to all the links so it's kind of available everywhere okay. and also oh, i want to say audiobook read by eddie and i is also available oh, so okay if you want to hear us saying talking for 10 hours that's also on <laughs> And and if you want to get the information and our stories shared for free, I encourage people to go to your local library and request that they get the book. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you can enjoy it. Or if you buy the book and like it, uh, donate it to your library so other people can uh, use it, enjoy it, and learn from it. Right. Well, thank you. I say that because lots of times people listen and they, they want to access your, your book and I think they need to know where they can get it. Because you always ask, or I always ask, you know, tell me about a good resource. But I found your book to be a really great resource on so many different components of eating and diet and healthy eating. And so I don't think, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure there are other resources out there, but I think that if they read this, and I like it because each chapter is independent. Um, right. And if they read this, they could, I think, they could get all the information that they need um, for wh whatever they're seeking in whatever arena. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, we talk about healthy eating. And when, at what point, does healthy eating become you know, you talked about it in your book, disordered eating, okay? When does healthy eating become disordered? Yeah, I think the line is so blurry for this because mm -hmm. we know that people can eat exactly identically if you just follow them around and write down what they eat. And for one person, in their mind, it is like, a battle all day long being like, I can't eat that. Oh, I really want that. Oh, really, you know, <laughs> stressed out all day. Like, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. And for another person, this is just how they eat. Right. And so yeah. you can't just define disordered eating by just what people are eating. Oftentimes there are clues in what people are eating. If people are terrified to go out to restaurants, they haven't planned out yet. If they're terrified to eat things that they don't know the amount of calories in. Right. Um, if they're terrified of certain food groups, like I can't eat anything with sugar in it because it'll make me fat. Mm -hmm. Those can be signs of disordered eating, but there are people who can eat in the exact same way. And for one person it's disordered and for the other person it's not. So there are tenants in the book that um, define healthy eating or a healthy relationship with food. And for example, one of them is flexibility. 
So this is kind of how I mentioned being able to go to unplanned places, to not have to constantly be planning your meals, not have to know what's in every meal, to be able to eat other people's cooking without having to measure it and these things not stressing you out. Um, another facet is also being able to enjoy your food and not just eating food only to lose weight, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the book outlines a few different things that show uh, what a healthy relationship to food is. And part of it is also not thinking or obsessing about your food all day. So having your thoughts constantly preoccupied with like, what's my next meal going to be? Mm. Um, how am I going to avoid this food? Oh my God, what if they're going to have cake at the office birthday party? Okay, I can't <laughs> the office birthday party. You know, mm -hmm. having these kind of obsessive thoughts about yeah. food is another sign of disordered eating. Okay. And Liz, for me to answer the question, I'm going to offer up a multi-decade um, experiment in a natural experiment done on three people that are my children and my wife and I are very dedicated to quote food enjoying food and we are certainly not immune from trying all sorts of different you know ways of eating and dieting over over the years everything from like whole 30 to the zone diet to um eating whole food plant-based to uh joining a meat um community um you know csa um um to uh, you know to have more meat so we were sort of like joyfully all over the place our kids were exposed to that and two of them just kind of like look at us like whatever and the third one uh because of the nature of the way she thinks mm -hmm. and um uh developed what we now call orthorexia which is fancy talk for sort of an obsession with clean eating uh -huh. um, and spending increasing amounts of brain space on that. And then in the wrong or the right circumstances, wrong circumstances, away at college where we couldn't see what was going on and amongst other people who were quite thin because she was an athlete, um, developed full-blown anorexia. Uh -huh. um, and this is all recounted in great detail uh, in the conversation I have with um, that, my, my daughter in, in chapter nine of the book. Um, you, you know, when I say that I cause your anorexia, she says, well, you know, my brother and sister don't have it. So, you know, you might have set up a, an opportunity for this, but, it, you know, it, it certainly was, was on me to sort of take it too far or, um, you know, get into the disordered end of the eating. Okay. As you talk about your children, and this is to both of you, do you see a difference in attitudes toward weight, overweight, male versus female? Um, I think for me, it, there is a huge difference. And I mm -hmm. know uh, I, I have heard male listeners and other people say this is something men struggle with too. This is not just a women's issue. And I totally understand like everybody struggles with wanting to have their body be a different way. However, I do think the struggles tend to be on average different between men and women. So I know there's a lot of body dysmorphia for men for wanting to be more muscular or wanting to be bigger. And that leads to its own issues. But it's different, I think, than having the issue of under eating because anorexia, for example, is the most mm -hmm. lethal psychiatric disorder. Yes, it is. So yeah. I understand that like, wanting to be more muscular is body dysmorphia in and of itself. But I do think that women, first of all, do struggle with this issue more on average. Like we see that in prevalence rates for eating disorders, women, uh, the prevalence rate in women for bulimia, for binge eating, for anorexia is higher than in men. 
Um, and this could be a reporting issue, but it could also just be that women in general seem to have more pressures on their body to look a certain way in society. Um, mm -hmm. And then I also just think anecdotally growing up, all my female friends were always trying to lose weight and none of them were mm. actually overweight, but they were always trying to lose weight. And I, I just never heard any of my guy friends say, oh, prom is coming up. I'm not going to eat lunch today because I want to fit into my suit. You know what I mean? Like they, but like all the girls I knew did that. Um, and similar, like when I had male and female teachers, you know, when people get to a certain age, like usually they'll say like, oh, I, I just wish I could lose 10 or 15 pounds. I feel like all my male and female teachers were of similar weights. Mm -hmm. And my female teachers were always saying, oh, I just need to lose these 15 pounds. Da, da, da. And oh, the no. men teachers would just never say anything. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if just it's something that men maybe don't talk about as much, but at least concretely in eating disorder rates, we do see that it's something that seems to affect women more than men. I mean, one one thing to add is that eating disorders um, occur mostly in secrecy. Mm -hmm. um, if I think about my, my daughter's case, it was largely secret from us. And as she recounts, it was almost like secret from her as her thoughts became more and more disordered. Um, I think just from the male perspective, yes, the rates are lower, but I think um, that there may be more, you know, a number of cases that are overlooked because we don't think about males having eating disorders and because they're probably a lot less likely to talk about them than, than their female counterparts. And see, this is where, and I know we've addressed this, I really would like to know the impact of culture because even today where there's a preponderance of information and encouragement to be thin, Certain cultures within, you know, American society don't see thin as being beautiful. And I just, you know, and, and I know we've already talked about this, but I'm just kind of thinking out loud that culture has to have a significant influence. I think. It's not just, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. That's it. Okay. I was trying to say it's not just um, other cultures, but even like think about the time period has such a massive influence, right? Because mm -hmm. in the 19th century, yes. it was considered unattractive to be thin, especially oh, yeah. for women. So it was thought to be like having a protruding belly was mm -hmm. seen as attractive. Mm -hmm. It was seen as a sign of fertility. So like people would get corsets to make their waist small, but they would want their stomach to stick out of the bottom because <laughs> it was a sign that you were a fertile woman. And like, if you look at what the the paintings of what the most beautiful yeah. supposedly women in that time were, it was like really voluptuous women. And so like, just imagine if that was the culture we lived in today, so many things would be different. Mm -hmm. um, and it just goes to show that it's so much about what is in style. And at that time, if you were very thin, it meant you were poor. Right? Yes, because you didn't have exactly. Food, that's why you were thin. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And now it's kind of the opposite. We see that obesity is actually much higher in lower income sectors of the population. So it's interesting. It's kind of done a complete 180 in the past 200 years. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Well, let's talk about, and I think, Eddie, you kind of referred to this, this whole clean eating. I mean, it seems to be a big trend. Um, at least in the circles that I seem to be interacting. I mean, this clean eating, young folks are very much into it. So can we talk about clean eating? What is clean eating? You know, um, and it going too far. I, I, I think it 
in my opinion, I think it goes too far. I think that people are taking it to the extreme. Um, I don't think it's healthy at all. Um, I think there's a problem there. And there is a certain group of folks, particularly young folks that I see doing this. We're going to hold our thoughts for a minute and take a brief break. Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. What's happening? You're tuned in to 411 Teen, and we are talking about eating and diet and making peace with your body. Well, I had just posed the question to you all about, about clean eating, um, comments, thoughts, on clean eating, please. So I'll 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 jump in first. Um, it kind of sounds perfect, doesn't it? I mm-hmm. mean, you don't want to <laughs> you don't want dirty eating. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Therefore, let's eat cleanly. Um, you know, we've already talked about the the dangers of the ultra processed, hyper palatable junk foods, and if clean eating just meant avoiding uh, junk foods and eating mm-hmm. real foods, uh, fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, you know, some uh, animal protein, if you like, um, some dairy, if you like, that would just seem to be fine. Except I, I think the way it's now defined in, um, and it's becoming a sort of a, a category in the in the DSM uh, uh, manual for psychiatric disorders, they're, they're, they're describing or you know, proposing to describe orthorexia, uh-huh. which, which is uh, ortho means straight, rexia from like eating. So instead of anorexia, it's sort uh-huh. of straight or clean eating. If you take that to the point where it becomes an obsession and you're spending uh, excess brain energy just trying to figure out what to eat and how to avoid every last little crumb of potential, you know, unclean food, um, then it, it becomes, uh, you know, something that is not a healthy way of eating. You know, you know, again, back to the junk food, it's not to give up, you know, every last morsel of it. It's to just make sure that not more, you know, not, you're not eating half your calories from junk food. You know, you got to mm-hmm. put down the chips and have a real dinner. That's, that's kind of, you know, what, what the, is going to help the population. So I, I think it's the absolute part. I mean, a lot of what, plagues people is the black and white thinking the you know either i screwed up and i you know went off my quote diet and i ate a something that i didn't seem to be in my clean eating repertoire Mm -hmm. you know now now i failed you know like that's what we got to get past Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's totally true i mean it, it seems like it's a good thing on the outside and then once it gets into the disordered eating territory is when it really gets taken too far. And I totally agree with you, Liz. I think oftentimes now it gets taken to an extreme and you kind of have to know what type of person you are when you're hearing information about food, because I know I'm the type of person that hears something like, you know, it's 
it's good to not eat any ultra processed food. And I'll be like, okay, like I'm never eating ultra processed food again. <laughs> like I feel like, oh, it might be good to do a longer fast every once in a while. Maybe don't eat for 12 hours. I'm like, I'm not going to eat for 72 hours, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. like, I just, I know I'm that type of person now. And so when I hear health information, I'm like, okay, I know I'm the type of person that takes things too far and goes to extremes. So let's just like approach everything with moderation. So Sure, like eating clean is healthy, but if it's making you mentally unwell, it's really not healthy. If you're miserable and you're anxious, it's really not healthy. Yeah. Can, can, I, can I just share like a, sure. a real quick thing that happened to me recently? So I'm visiting some friends and one of them had just come from a baking school mm. um, and she had learned how to make chocolate eclairs. And generally, I would tell you I, that I try not to eat chocolate eclairs. <laughs> Because they're usually like just so fluffed mm -hmm. up and so really sweet. And it's just, it doesn't make me feel good. And, and you know what, Liz, it doesn't fit with my clean eating, <laughs> but it was homemade and I didn't want to insult, you know, the person. So I, you know, instead of eating the whole thing, I, I took a bite and I was, this is the best chocolate eclair I've ever had. This is something mm. savor. I want to bring one home to my family. Um, this is the perfect way to make it. The cream was not too sweet. The, 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 I was just, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm salivating now thinking about it. I feel better having had that experience, even though it, you know, it doesn't fit with my, my perception of, you know, the, the, the mm -hmm. optimal diet. Eddie, I know you kind of, re, uh, alluded and referred to this earlier, but at what point do parents say, hey, look, this has gone too far. We have got to do something. And they decide to intervene and, and recommend professional help. Um, for the listening audience, would you just kind of give them some signs of when they need to do this? I'll, I'll, I'll share this one with Yuna, but one that I'll um, start with is that the... If you, if you suspect that something is going on, understand that most of what is going on is lost in, in, the, in, the, in the corners, in the darkness, in the, in the secrecy of, of your kid's own mind as they spend increasing amounts of time um, you know, worrying about what to eat, what not to eat, and then kind of making up excuses about why they can't eat a certain way or um saying that you know they they feel like they need to go exercise more than they used to or more than they actually enjoy um that they want to like maybe not join the, the dinner table um i remember at the worst of it um how remarkably distracted my daughter was um when, like when any food was in front of her mm. I mean, the calculations going on and and she became almost mute you know, in the midst of a, an otherwise wonderful conversation when, when the food hit the plate. Uh, so those are just some of the, you know, the signs. Uh, I mean, obvious, some obvious mm -hmm. other ones make excessive changes in weight. But, you know, other things to, to add to that? Um, I think just noticing body checking. So if you're noticing somebody's always weighing themselves, they're always like, even if it's comments, like I'll notice a lot of people who I've found out since have struggled with disordered eating will make offhand comments like, oh, like her arms are so much thinner than mine or like, oh, I wish my stomach was like that. And of course, like people will make comments like that all the time. But if a specific person is constantly making comments like that, I think a lot of the time it can be a sign of an unhealthy relationship um, with your body. Um, and like Eddie said, like kind of being really stressed out about 
not having control over food. So if you say like, oh, I know we want to go to this restaurant, but actually I was thinking we could go to this one. They're like, no, 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 we have to go to the one we were planning on. I already like picked out what I'm going to get there, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, kind of having this like mm-hmm. inflexible attitude mm-hmm. towards eating is a really big sign. I laugh because several that I know have that inflexible attitude. Right? I thought we were going, yeah. I thought we were going here and you're changing it. Oh, no. <laughs> Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't you can't read the menu and decide from reading yeah, the menu. Like, I already I already picked out my salad and salmon at this I, place. I know. know. I know. Well, one of the other things I wanted to add was is that uh, first off, talking to your teenagers is always emotionally charged. <laughs> That's true. Even, even if it's about you know saying good morning, sometimes um, this is an even more emotionally charged area. And I would be pretty quick to reach out for help mm-hmm. uh, if you suspect something's mm-hmm. going on. And one of the groups that we uh, always refer to when we speak on our podcast, Food We Need to Talk About Eating Disorders, we always call out and give the phone number or the website for uh, the National Eating Disorders Association. So that's a group to call to find out local practitioners or people that you can talk to on your phone. Uh, one of the ways that Yuna and I, um, when we met way back in 2018, one of the things that drew us together is that Yuna's the same age as my daughter who had anorexia. And mm. all of the things that I wanted to say to my daughter, didn't know how to say, I could say to Yuna because, you know, we're, we're not related. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as we say, like we could dance on that third rail of emotions. And, you know, I could come to understand what my daughter was going through from speaking to Yuna. So bringing in a third party, calling a professional organization, getting a specialist involved early um, is way high on the list. Could trying to lose weight be unhealthier than being overweight? We do see that there is a risk that when you try to lose weight, it actually ends up backfiring and it it does become unhealthier. And this happens for a lot of reasons. But for example, oftentimes when people try to lose weight, they will actually end up heavier than the weight they started at because of the way the body tries to conserve energy, Mm -hmm. um, especially during a calorie deficit. But then also we see all the psychological effects that go along with trying to lose weight, especially if you're the type of person to take things to an extreme can also be so much more detrimental than actually just having the excess weight in the first place. So I think the danger of saying like, we shouldn't be trying to lose weight is then people will think like, oh, well then we shouldn't be trying to eat healthier and we shouldn't be trying to exercise. Mm -hmm. Like, no, 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 we should be trying to eat better and we should be trying to exercise, but it should not be for the purpose of weight loss, right? Mm -hmm. Because then if the scale doesn't move at all, you won't get discouraged because the fact is, if you eat better and you exercise and the scale does not move, you are incredibly improving your Mm -hmm. health prospects, even if your weight doesn't change. And so when people's only goal is weight loss and it's so hard to lose weight and they don't see the scale move, they just give up because why wouldn't you if you're not seeing the results you want, right? So I think we should all be trying to eat better, trying to move more and sleep better, but we shouldn't have weight loss be the end goal or the only end goal. Well, and I'll okay, go right ahead. I'll, I'll, sorry, go I'll, ahead. I'll give like just an offer. It's like a, a no. perspective on it, it depends on which weight you're trying to lose. Is it the early excess weight or those last 10 pounds? And mm-hmm. just from my clinical experience, I've got so many patients that with a gentle nudge, they were willing to cut back 
on the, you know, maybe give up that second dessert or buy a smaller bag of chips, et cetera, and cut down on their second portions and like simple behaviors that were not felt as being overly restrictive, just a little bit healthier. They might lose some early weight, mm -hmm. you know, what they call like, oh, that's the easy way, doc. I could shed 15 <laughs> pounds if I just gave up the chips. Um, they, they will have improvement um, metabolically. They'll be healthier. Mm -hmm. my, my observation is that the, the trouble, you know, comes when you're trying to lose that last five or 10 pounds. And it's just so difficult. And that's where you get into all of what Yuna was just talking about, um, you know, and, and where the restriction is, is becoming sort of like more toxic and maybe just leave well enough alone and focus on all of the other wonderful aspects of your life that are going to make you healthier, like exercising and sleeping and mm. calling friends. Of course. Now we have this age of, what is it? Ozempic. So why even worry about it? All we got to do is pop, <laughs> <laughs> pop <Thank> a pill. <laughs> you know, just pop a pill. I'm, I'm so glad that we got this. This is the number one question we get at every interview. It's like, why should we even care anymore, guys? Oh, really? Yes, yes. And it's a great question. And I think it gets back to this idea of why are we doing the changes we're making, right? If you are changing the way you eat and exercising only to lose weight, guess what? Ozempic is a million times easier. It requires zero effort. You inject yourself. It's really expensive. But if you have the money, then mm -hmm. like, oh, great. Like you can just inject yourself. You're not going to have an appetite. You're not going to eat. You'll lose weight and you got your goal, right? Right. If your goal is that you actually want to reduce your risk of cancer and heart disease and stroke and you want to be strong and be able to move as you get older and run around with your kids and then hold your grandkids and all of these things, Ozempic doesn't do any of that for you. So in fact, actually, it might be even more dangerous to be on Ozempic if you aren't really careful about what you're eating and really careful about exercising. Because when you lose weight so quickly on Ozempic, because it decreases your appetite so much, you're at a much greater risk of losing muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And we know that losing muscle mass is the reason that people's metabolism slows down as they age. So if you look at people's metabolism from 30s to 40s, 50s, 60s, your metabolism doesn't really change, but many people experience that their metabolism, quote, slows down, and that's because you're losing muscle mass, mm. and muscle mass is a very metabolically active tissue. Um, that's not even to mention all the mobility problems that come along with losing muscle mass, right? As you get older, you're, you're going to get weaker, and you're not going to be able to do the things that you want to do. So that's just one portion of it, is that you have to be even more careful about exercise if you're on Ozempic. And the other thing is that it really reduces your appetite, and so... Something that might happen is that you have to eat hyperpalatable foods because it's the only things that you really want to eat because you really have no appetite. And if you're eating only those foods, you're not really getting any nutrients in. So you also have to be careful with how much you reduce your appetite because eating becomes a chore. And so then it becomes a lot more work to actually make yourself eat these nutritious foods to get all the micronutrients that you actually need. So I think there's a lot of really complicated nuances with Ozempic. Obviously, for people who actually need it to treat um, their disease, like if they have diabetes, for example, it's a fantastic product. I hope that it becomes more widely available and more covered by insurances. So it's not so, um, you know, only for the rich. But if you're just using it to lose those last 10 pounds, I really don't think it's actually giving you what people want in the end. Mm, okay. Well, the one thing you were talking about, exercise. Exercise seems to have taken a back seat somewhat. I mean, you look at the school curricula. It's virtually eliminated. P.E., 
I mean, what message are we sending with that? Oh, Liz, this is, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is driven my career for the last 15, 20 years. Um, the field of medicine I'm in is mm -hmm. physical medicine and rehab. We are the exercise docs. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. We use, we treat muscles, which if you're slim or more than half your body, it is what gets us from point A to point B to do the things that we need to do, that we want to do, that we love to do. It's all about movement. If there were a magic pill, um, that did everything that exercise does for you from improving your sex life to your mood to helping you sleep to helping your skin look better to oh my god you know, re, re, you know giving you a boost of energy immediately i mean that would be a blockbuster drug like like no other that's what exercise you know does for you the fact that our society is slipping more and more into a sedentary state uh, in part because you can. I mean, if you live, um, if your if your um, commute is from your bedroom to your desk, <laughs> and and you know to the toilet and your kitchen because mm -hmm. you're at home worker, you don't have to move anymore. And yet, right. a ten minute walk after lunch is going to uh, improve everything. We need to uh, take on the, everything from the built environment to make sure that the safe, fun. A creative way to get someplace is, is by walking or biking. Um, we need to address uh, physical education in schools because the kids are just going to do better. I mean, we, we can demonstrate that. Um, we need to change the the transportation. I mean, it, there, there's so many places to, to intercede. And the communities that do that, um, there are these groups that are areas that are now described as blue zones where They've studied people who live to 100 very health, healthfully. Um, what would it take? You, you would have a more of a walking culture. And if you change nothing, nothing else, you're going to have a, a healthier, happier population. So I'm with you. Um, I'd love to speak for another hour just on that. I know. I was just looking at the clock going, oh, I need another hour. I have a ton of more questions. I wanted to ask you about vitamins and supplements, how you felt about that. I wanted to ask about the, the really the impact of COVID um, and how it's impacted eating habits. And it looks like, and oh, one big thing, and I, I'm just talking now because we're running out of time. I also <laughs> wanted to ask you about the future of meat. You know, we hear so much now about this lab-grown beef, chicken, and pork. I, I wanted to ask you about it, but it's time out. I have run <laughs> I have run out of time, and I do want to say thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing all your expertise, and if I make it to Boston, I'm going to check you out. Please, to, we have to be up in person. Okay, to my listening audience, thank you for your time and year, your ear. Tune in to 411 Team next week, same time, same place, to get the 411 on 411 Team. Four One One Team was produced by Dr. Liz Hollyfield. Technical assistance was provided by Evan Rossi. If you would like to participate in the Four One One Team or have suggestions for discussion topics, call eight five zero six four five seven two zero zero. You can listen to previous episodes of Four One One Team at wfsu.org.